0: Welcome back to Rebellious History. This is Liz Busquets, and we're on episode three, the first in a series about the role of religion in history. Before we get to the episode, I would like to f- remind you that if you would like any topics discussed or you see a questionable meme that you want me to address, feel free to email me at rebellioushistory at gmail.com or go to the Rebellious History Facebook page. If you can stop also by the uh, Facebook page and give us a like, that would be wonderful. If you haven't listened to my COVID-19 shelter-in-place diary, I would like you to know that I am recording the podcast from home and not from my office. And so I apologize in advance about the quality of the recording. It may not be as good. I'll try to edit some of the extra noises out of the recording but you may hear my dogs and the rain and birds, who knows what. So I just want you to know that that's why it's happening. As I previously mentioned, our topic today is religion and is the first episode on a series about this topic. I decided to address religion because it is a highly debated and contested topic today. Many of the memes that I have seen have to do with religion, from feeding current anti-Muslim sentiment by using comparisons to the Crusades, to misconceptions about the Puritans and their role, what will eventually be the United States, and about the role of religion in the founding of the country. High school history classes and even some college introductory history classes do not cover religion with much detail, and the result is that there's a lot of misinformation out there, So I'm going to provide you with enough knowledge so that you can have informed discussions about religion's role in history and hopefully dispel some of the myths that are spread out there through social media and other outlets. Even in the absence of empirical evidence for the existence of miracles and whether some of us believe that there is such thing as miracles, So even in the absence of empirical evidence for the existence of miracles, all it takes is for some people to believe that there are miracles. That perception drives many of the decisions that leaders have made in the past, and therefore they have a historical role. Religion has a powerful influence on people. Leaders have used religion to unify their people, sometimes against other groups, sometimes to reach a common goal. I'm not going into the Bible's accounts of Jesus' life and death. Not only do I think that most people have some knowledge about Jesus' story, but there is unfortunately very little, if any, empirical evidence for his existence that I can discuss from a historical perspective. However, I'm sure everybody knows that Romans persecuted early Christians primarily because they became aware of Christianity's subversive potential. They considered Christianity subversive because it preached loyalty to Jesus and God instead of the Roman Empire, and believers were willing to disobey Roman rules. But by the early 300s, the Roman Empire was plagued with internal strife and conflicts. The empire was governed at this time by a tetrarchy. Several of these leaders were fighting over the empire, and there were conflicts related to secession. One of these leaders was Constantine, and he wanted to get rid of Maxentius I, who he considered to be an usurper. The only way that this conflict was going to be settled was through war. According to the historian Eusebius, in the year 312, Constantine and Maxentius were finally set to go into battle at the Milvian Bridge, which is a bridge that spans over the river Tiber near Rome. So imagine this, it was the eve of the great battle and they are camped near the Milvian Bridge. Concerned about the upcoming battle, Constantine was weary thinking about his strategy when suddenly he looked up at the sky and saw this radiant light in the shape of the cross. Or it could have been also the Cairo, which was one of the earliest symbols used by Christians. At any rate, he also saw these words in the sky. In this sign you shall conquer. At first, he wasn't sure what this all meant, but that night he had a dream where jesus came to him and explained to him what it meant he told him that the sign that using the sign of the cross against their enemies the victory will be ensured the next day constantine quickly related this obvious sign from god and his soldiers allegedly painted the symbol of the cross on their shields Again, there is no empirical evidence that this actually happened, but this is how the historian Eusebius is describing it. On October 28, year 312, Constantine defeated Maxentius' forces. Eventually, so the story goes, Constantine converted to Christianity. His victory at the battle and his alleged conversion changed the course of Christianity. It placated the persecutions and aided in Christianity's spread over the whole empire and over all Europe. The battle also gave Constantine undisputed control over the Western Roman Empire. This is not a small thing. His decision to embrace Christianity allowed him to unify the Western Roman Empire under one overarching set of beliefs while still claiming tolerance to all religions something that he declared in the Edict of Milan in the year 313. Historians have debated about this for years. Some believe that the conversion was sincere. Others believe that it was a well orchestrated political decision. Constantine, however, was not the only figure to supposedly have these visions or experience miracles or get messages from God. Mohammed, allegedly had such visions as well, and in the process, he founded Islam. Now, it is important to understand that both Christianity and Islam are what historians classify as imperialistic religions. This means that one of the main goals is to spread their faith throughout the world. Sometimes this has been done through preaching and passive conversion. Other times this has been done through war and conquests. These two faiths were trying to do the same thing during the Middle Ages. As a result, in the year 711, Muslim peoples from North Africa invaded the Iberian Peninsula, now Spain and Portugal. There was nobody who was prepared to stop them, and they took control of most of the peninsula. And so starts the history of the reconquests. This is important because it is the reconquests which eventually encouraged the church to start the crusades. The Muslim leaders soon established kingdoms all over the Iberian Peninsula, sometimes united. The same with the Christian nobles, sometimes they would join some of these Muslim kingdoms against other Christian kingdoms or against other Muslim kingdoms. And Christians were not really persecuted, but Christians, Muslims, and Jews kept separate even though they traded with each other and sometimes helped each other in battle. For example, El Cid, one of the most famous Spanish figures of this period, sometimes fought under the Christian flag and sometimes under a Muslim kingdom flag. The Christian kingdoms in the north of Spain, however, wanted to get the peninsula back, and the main justification, of course, was religion upholding Christianity. But we also know that there were plenty of economic and political reasons. The fact is that the Christians slowly started chipping away at the Muslim kingdoms and started to recover some of the territories in the Iberian Peninsula. So, if you look at the, a map of Spain, you will see a city smack in the middle of the peninsula by the name of Toledo. In 1085, this was the capital of the Muslim Taifa kingdom of Al Andalus. King Alfonso VI of Castile started a siege of the city. Now, he was very good at manipulating politics and he knew that there were other Muslim kingdoms that wanted to get rid of the Muslim Taifa kingdom. So eventually he forced the city of Toledo to surrender. Again this was in 1085. This victory at Toledo encouraged Pope Urban II in 1095, only 10 years after the victory at Toledo, to call for a crusade to take back the Holy Land from the so-called infidels and to aid the Byzantine Empire in a conflict with the Turks. So, friars and priests went all over Europe, inciting men to join in, while some of the higher echelons of the church tried to recruit nobles to go ahead and go on this first crusade. Of course, this was for God and the Christian faith, but... The cynical historian in me also figures that there was much to be gained in terms of trade, territory, land. Just before Pope Urban can get that first crusade really organized and going, a charismatic fry by the name of Peter the Hermit got peasants to follow him in what is now known as the People's Crusade. Now, this was a total screw-up. They were not disciplined, even though there were some knights with them. And they ended up pillaging even Christian towns on the way as they went to the Middle East. And eventually, once they got there, they got massacred by the Turks. The preaching for the First Crusade and this People Crusade going through Europe also resulted in a lot of anti-Semitic sentiment all over Europe, many attacks on Jews. The higher echelons of the church, as I said, recruited nobles all over Europe. And eventually, this first crusade, the real first crusade, gets underway. This was a truly well-organized army. Not only did they succeed in helping the Byzantine Empire against the Turks, but they did reconquer the Holy Land, establishing the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1099 after massacring the defenders. Of course, many other crusades followed, and there were plenty of failures. The second crusade, from 1147 to 1150, was called by Pope Eugene III in response to the fall of the county of Edessa to Muslim forces. Some of the crusaders left from England and on the way helped the Portuguese recapture Lisbon from the Muslim kingdoms. The rest of the crusade was really a failure, and this failure influenced the eventual fall of Jerusalem to the Muslims. the kingdom of Jerusalem, in 1187, fell to a very capable Muslim leader by the name of Saladin. And after this happened, the third crusade was organized, supposedly to recover Jerusalem from Saladin. And to this end, King Philip II of France, and King Henry II of England put aside their differences because they hated each other and decided to go on this crusade. Unfortunately, King Henry II died and King Richard I took over. If you faintly recognize the name of King Richard, it's because you probably heard it in in the Robin Hood stories. This is the king that was away on the crusade and his brother tries to take over the kingdom in England, and Robin Hood ends up fighting against him. The German Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, also answered the call and had some victories, but drowned, and the German forces lost their morale and returned home. So there were some victories at Acre, and then Richard signed a treaty with Saladin, which granted Muslim control over Jerusalem, but allowed merchants and pilgrims from Europe to visit. Altogether, the success of this crusade is highly debatable. The Fourth Crusade was another disaster, was between 1202 and 1204, and this one was called by Pope Innocent III in response to the fact that the Third Crusade was unable to recover Jerusalem. But the crusaders instead attacked a Christian city on the way, and the Pope ended up excommunicating them all. The crusade ended up in the invasion and destruction of Constantinople, which was a Christian city, and the Christian states established during this time just caused wars with the Byzantine successors and the Bulgarian Empire. So not a very successful crusade at all. The Fifth Crusade was another unsuccessful attempt to recapture Jerusalem, but the crusade uh, of Frederick II succeeded in getting some control over the Holy Land back, mostly thanks to diplomatic efforts. There was also the Albigensian Crusade, which lasted about 20 years and was a campaign incited by Pope Innocent Innocent III, against Catharism in southern France. Now, now we're not talking about a crusade in the Middle East of the Holy Land, we're talking about a crusade against other Christians in southern France. Catharism was a Christian dualist or Gnostic belief system that the church considered not true Christianity. The Cathars were defeated and then persecuted for quite some time, they would often have to come in front of the medieval Inquisition, which is not the same as the Spanish Inquisition, and they got basically eradicated by 1350. While all these crusades were going on to the Holy Land and the south of France, in Spain, the reconquests had continued. First, with a Christian coalition of rival kings, Alfonso VIII of Castile, sancho the seventh of navarre pedro the second of aragon and Afonso the second of portugal together with several of the orders such as the hospitalers and the knights templar they eventually won against the almohads at the battle of navas de tolosa in 1212 this navas de tolosa victory in Andalusia, which is in southern Spain, was a turning point for Christians in the Iberian Peninsula. Jaime I of Aragon also successfully moved south on the eastern coast, winning the territories of Valencia and eventually Murcia. By 1250, the main Muslim kingdom remaining on the peninsula was the Kingdom of Granada. And the kingdom of Granada will hold on until 1492. And I will address some more on this on the next episode. So what about miracles? What do miracles have to do with all of this? Many of the crusades and also the battles of the reconquests were described and narrated in chronicles written by first-hand witnesses, people who were there. These chronicles describe many instances where leaders or even peasants had visions that helped Christians in battle. For example, there were some instances where crusaders were traveling on ships and they encountered some severe storms and they were all afraid and started praying to God and suddenly either Jesus or angels would descend and save them from the storms. Also, during battle in the Middle East, angels and bright lights shining from the sky will fall on the Christian comrades that had been killed and fallen, keeping the enemy from desecrating the corpses. There were also some instances where dreams with religious messages guided decisions. At times when Christian armies thought everything was lost, saints and archangels suddenly appeared and saved the day. Was this propaganda in the Chronicles, or did these people really think that they saw these things? In terms of history, it may not matter whether these were real, imagined, or invented. What mattered was the effect that it had on the leaders and the men following them. The belief in the possibility of miracles, of divine intervention, helped to justify some of these armed conflicts, and they gave the crusaders hope that they would eventually prevail. It also, of course, gave them plenty of opportunities to pillage, plunder, try to get rich. In many ways, these miracles also provided sustaining fuel for these armed conflicts, without which Spain would have never been reconquered, the many consequences of the crusades would not have come to be. The miracles also included relics, and the power that these relics had to heal and to help armies in battles. Relics could be objects allegedly touched by saints or Jesus, or it could be the corpse of saints or pieces of the corpse of saints, there is one chronicle, for example, that describes how the Christian army was in despair until one of them had a dream that divulged the location of a piece of Jesus' cross. He went to the location and found this relic, and so the chronicle says, and after he found this relic, the army, the crusader army, got a second win and they won the battle. There already was a business of relics before the Crusades, but with these Crusades, the relic business really took off. Some towns would pay for relics so that they could put them in their church and attract pilgrims. These pilgrims meant big money, and not only for the church, but for a large number of people who sold trinkets and even water that had allegedly touched the relic. And this was because they believed that these relics had some sort of healing power. It was the medieval version of tourism, and is still going on in some ways. There are relics all over the world in different Catholic churches. And, for example, I was on a research trip to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and on a weekend where I was free, I decided to just go around Old San Juan and see all the sites. And I went inside the San Juan Cathedral, which is a very beautiful church. It has beautiful statues, beautiful paintings, beautiful carvings. And I noticed this one glass box in one corner of the church. And inside this glass box, there is a porcelain statue, full-body porcelain statue lying there. And there was this placard that explained that inside this porcelain statue lied the body, the remains of a martyr that had died during the Roman persecutions. So what had happened was that the archbishop in Puerto Rico had asked the church in Rome to provide a relic to stay in Puerto Rico. And so this is the relic that the Vatican had eventually sent to Puerto Rico. And so, inside this porcelain statue was the body of this martyr. So, I'm looking at it, and I see on the lips, the lips are parted on the statue, and you actually see, like, the teeth of the skull inside the porcelain statue. And, of course, it freaked me out. I don't know how people, you know, deal with this relic business, but there it was. This was an example of a relic. And even though today it may not be um, as important to have these pilgrimages, they still occur, and there are many pilgrims that go all over Europe and even in places in South America and Central America where they go to visit alleged relics of saints or uh, relics that have to do with Jesus in some way or another. There were many other consequences of the Crusades and the reconquests, Besides the devastation that it caused and the hundreds of thousands that were left dead, the relic trade was not the only one that resulted from the Crusades. There were a lot of other trades that also increased during this time. Some historians even believe that an embryonic form of capitalism started to take form as a result of the Crusades. It bankrupted some people and others became very wealthy. Another consequence of the Crusades is that Europeans learned a lot of science, mathematics, and medicine from the Islamic peoples, who were more advanced in these subjects. They laid the foundation to many of the changes that eventually led to the Renaissance and to the Age of Exploration. The Islamic culture also made its way into European food and other cultural expressions, if you go to Spain, the Islamic influences are all over the place. From that perspective, the so-called miracle or vision that Constantine experienced in the year 312 changed Europe. Eventually, made Christianity the dominant religion in Europe. Islam, with its own set of miracles and visions, also aided in creating powerful kingdoms. The stage was soon set for some of the bloodiest conflicts in medieval history, the Crusades and the Reconquests. Yet that zealous religiosity did not stop at targeting each other. Many times they targeted people with the same belief system. It is that kind of history that has convinced me that religion is a wonderful thing for those individuals who believe it gives people hope But organized religion and religion at a greater order of magnitude and religion related and intertwined with the state is a totally different story. But this story does not end with the crusades and the reconquests. In the next episode, I will finish up with the discussion of the fall of the kingdom of Granada. This is an important event because it not only led to the persecution of Jews and Muslims in Spain, but to the exploration impulse and eventually the colonization of the New World. In another episode, then we'll get to the Reformation, which eventually led to the appearance of groups like the Puritans and the Quakers and their arrival in North America. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and stay home as much as possible until this crisis is over. Thank you.